Hey friends, I just want to invite you to consider joining the Theology Nara Patreon community. This is a group of followers who believe in the ministry and work of Theology Nara and want to support it financially. And honestly, I've been so impacted by the people who have chosen to support this podcast. Um, every month they send in a bunch of questions. A lot of them are really personal and I get to spend time responding to them in a private podcast. And we, you know, we'll message each other throughout the month and post responses to each other's questions. I'm actually going to start something new this fall, a monthly live Zoom chat with some of the members. And I'm super looking forward to actually seeing more of their faces every month. And there's other perks that come up, like a free virtual pass to the Theology Nara Exiles in Babylon conference every year. But honestly, I don't want to make it sound transactional. Every single single Patreon member that I've talked to says the same thing. We like all the perks. Uh, we're thankful for them, but we're just more thankful to support the ministry of theology in the raw, and we're glad to do so. So if this is you, if you've been impacted by Theology in the Raw, you can join the Theology in the Raw community for a minimum of five bucks a month by going to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. The link is in the show notes. Woo-wee. All right, here we go, folks. Uh, my guest today is Alex Awad. Alex, oh gosh, he's got a long list of credentials here. A master's degree in missiology from Asbury Seminary, a master's in education from Northern Georgia University, a bachelor's in secondary education from Lee University, bachelor's in biblical education from Lee University as well. He's been a pastor and a missionary with the United Methodist Church, and he is the co-founder of Bethlehem Bible College in Bethlehem. Yes, the Bethlehem in Israel. Uh, he taught there for a number of years. Um, he's also the author of two books. One is Through the Eyes of Victims, a discussion about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from the perspective of a Palestinian, and also Palestinian Memories, the story of a Palestinian mother and her people. This is a fascinating conversation. And as you'll hear in 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 our in our conversation. I mean, I've only, you know, paid attention to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict primarily through, I mean, obviously of an American lens, a, a Christian lens, and, you know, really a lens that's very pro-Israeli. Uh, and I lived in Israel for a few months. Um, that, so that's the, been the perspective that I have, you know, uh, come from. But I, I, as you know, if you've listened to this podcast for more than, you know, six minutes, you know that I'm, I'm always eager to say, well, what's the other side of the story? What's the other perspective that I, I might not be... Um, hearing. And that's what this podcast is. Alex is, as you'll see, very uh, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, uh, grew up in Palestine, just recently moved to the United States. Um, and so he's going to have what might be, for some of you, a very different uh, perspective on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So um, you can agree, you can disagree, you can be on the fence, whatever. Um, but you know, in this podcast, we want to, first of all, be a curious listener and really understand someone's perspective and learn from that. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Alex Awad. Thanks so much, Alex, for being a guest on Theology in Iran. I know this this uh, interview kind of probably came out of nowhere, <laughs> so I'm, I'm so thankful you agreed to come on. Well, I'm honored to be with you, and um, uh, thank you for um, asking me to be on your podcast because the Palestinian voice is not well heard in right. the United States and in North America in general. Right. And so I welcome every opportunity okay. <laughs> to share and help my fellow 
citizens in the United States understand the challenges that Palestinian people are going through. Well, I'm, I'm, I've been so excited to talk to you because, yeah, I, I'll be the first one to admit that, you know, whenever I, you know, hear of a conflict, you know, in Israel, it, we I typically hear it from the Israeli side of things, you know, and I don't know why that is, you know, uh, maybe, I'm really excited to hear it not only from the side of a Palestinian, but somebody who's a Palestinian Christian, because I mean, that I think Americans often have such a stereotype when they think of Palestinians, they just think of just terrorists, you know, <laughs> running around bombing people. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm, I'm going to assume you're going to give a maybe a slightly different perspective. But let, let's, um, why don't you explain to our audience, you know, who are you? How did you get, were you raised a Christian? And how did you get into um, wanting to be kind of a, a theologian, a writer, a, an, an academic in, in the Christian world? Yeah, well, my story, story starts in um, Jerusalem. I was born in Jerusalem. Two years after I was born, uh, there was a war in the Middle East, which we call the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. My father, who was a civilian, was shot and killed in that war, leaving my mother with seven children. And um, not only we lost um, the father, who was the breadwinner in the family, but also soon after we lost our home, we were expelled from our neighborhood in West Jerusalem, and we became refugees. Uh, like almost uh, 800,000 Palestinians became refugees in 1948, so we became also refugees, and we moved from West Jerusalem to East uh, Jerusalem. So I was two years old. Uh, soon after, when I was about three years old, I was put in a boarding school, uh, an orphanage, not only me, but uh, many of my brothers and sisters, because my mother took a job as a nurse in a hospital, and she couldn't be a full-time nurse and a full-time mother for seven children. And so we, we scattered into boarding schools and orphanages. Uh, but my mother was very keen about our education. She wanted to make sure that every one of us get a fair education. So she worked very, very hard uh, to uh, educate us. At the same time, she has to struggle to put food on the table. Uh, for uh, seven mouths to eat, you know. Uh, so it was really tough. The only thing that uh, made so much impact on our lives is that my mother was a committed Christian. Her motto was, don't look back, always look forward, don't ask why God, always ask how God, don't harbor any hatred in your heart, always forgive, always wow. forgive. This is what she uh, tried to uh, plant in our hearts, you know, to, to forgive, to look forward, to study hard, and to uh, do our best uh, instead of revenging and instead of uh, being bitter, uh, rather, you know, study and then maybe contribute to the society that d done you so much harm, you know. <laughs> Yeah. So as we grew up, um, my mother would take us to church. She would be the Sunday school teacher. So we grew in a very, very spiritually rich environment, although we were utterly poor, you know, uh, because we lost everything. We were utterly poor. 
you know, financially, we didn't have any uh, house for, of our own. We have to rent all the time uh, with the meager salary of my mother. So it, it was very, very tough. But we never felt poor because of the wealth of the spiritual life and atmosphere that my mother has uh, created around our house. So we, we felt <laughs> like we were the children of God, you know, yeah. uh, in spite of the miserable circumstances that we were in. Um, and uh, so we went to schools in Jerusalem. By the time I graduated from high school, I was reflecting on my life and I wanted the same faith like my mother, not only just to believe in Jesus Christ and to believe in God, but I wanted to serve this God that uh, helped us to go through all of these problems and all of these challenges. I wanted the faith of my mother and also to serve the Lord uh, that my mother served. So immediately from high school, I went to Bible colleges in Europe and then in the United States, and I studied in different uh, Bible colleges and seminaries here right. in the United States. So uh, when I reflect on my life, I just uh, thank God because he took us through the storm into uh, the other side. And um, uh, I became a pastor. I became a Bible college uh, teacher. And my brother Bishara and I helped start Bethlehem Bible College the first Bible college in the Holy Land for the evangelical and Protestant groups. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's just an amazing journey, and we just give credit to God for his leadership and his grace on us. Alex, I'm curious, what, what do you know what kind of percent, what the percentage of Palestinians that are Christians growing up, were you guys like, an anomaly, you know, or are there, are there a decent number of Palestinians who are also like evangelical Protestant Christians? Or, well, uh, when I was born, the number of Christians was uh, in in Palestine was between fifteen to twenty percent of oh, the population. Okay. Yeah, but right now, right now, it's probably less than two percent. Oh wow! So you can see in my lifetime, uh, Christianity in the Holy Land and in most of the Middle East have declined um, rapidly, partly because of the political uh, upheaval and partly because of the economic situation that was brought about by the political turmoil in the Middle East. So Christians in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, they've been under persecution and under the threat of war, not so much from um, governments, but from um, you know, radical groups in the Middle East that were very, very upset with American foreign policy, mm -hmm. and they couldn't hit directly on America, so they hit on the Arab Christians who were living among them. So okay. the, this is tragic because the Arab Christians, you know, they were their fellow compatriots, and, uh, yeah. you know, they are national citizens, faithful citizens of these countries. But the radical groups, you know, the fanatic groups, they don't make a difference. And many of them, out of anger with the West, they persecuted Christians in the Middle East. And, uh, of course, the Israeli occupation 
the fact that Israel came, took our land, our very land, our very homes, our very gardens, trees, fruits, uh, springs of water, everything we had, the Israelis took it away from us and made us refugees. And that's why many, many Christians fled to other countries because they couldn't survive in Palestine under the Israeli occupation. That's interesting. I mean, to hear that perspective, because we're so used to saying like, you know, Israel has a right to the land. This is their land. Um, how, how would you respond to somebody that says, well, no, this is was originally Israel's land. So they didn't take your land. They kind of just reclaimed what was already theirs. I, and again, I'm just conveying a perspective that is out there. Yeah, we have to remember that we have two covenants in our Bible. One, we call it uh, the Old Testament. One, we call it the New Testament. And there is no doubt that in the Old Covenant, God gave the land to the Jewish people. I mean, from Moses to Joshua to um, Nehemiah, Isaiah. When you read in the Old Testament, definitely we see that God chose the Jewish people and God gave them uh, the land of Canaan. That That is uh, very clear. Any Bible-believing person mm-hmm. cannot deny the fact that in the Old Testament, God gave the land to the Jewish people. But with the advent of Christ, with the coming of Christ, Jesus became our promised land. Mm. Jesus became um, our hope and our future. So, uh, so it's no more with Jesus, with his coming— It's no more territorial. The kingdom of God stopped being territorial and became spiritual. And uh, so uh, when, uh, you know, the disciples went to Jesus and he said, are you ready to give us the kingdom? Mm -hmm. He said, you know, it's none of your business to know about when God is going to give the kingdom. But stay in Jerusalem until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. What Jesus was trying to do is get their focus away from a territorial kingdom uh, into a spiritual kingdom. Mm -hmm. And again and again in in the Bible, you you know, where where you see Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God is not a territorial, it's a spiritual kingdom. Also, the concept of chosen people in the Old Testament, there were the Jews, the chosen people. But with the advent of Christ, we all became chosen people through faith in Jesus Christ. So not just the Jews are God's chosen people, but we are all. All those who believe in Jesus, they are God's children and they are uh, God's people. So both the concept of chosenness and the concept of the land was totally altered in Jesus. I mean, it's amazing because not only this, but the concept of the temple. In the Old Testament, it was temple made of stones. In the New Testament, Paul said, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. So there is no more need for a physical temple, uh, the Temple Mount or Mount Moriah or Mount Zion, wherever you want to place it, because Um, Our bodies, our hearts, our minds have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. The priesthood in the Old Testament was Levitical priesthood. In the New Testament, we became priests because Jesus made us priests for himself. That's what the New Testament teaches. Uh, 
the sacrifice in the Old Testament was animal sacrifice. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ became the ultimate sacrifice. So all of these things were changed because uh, of Jesus Christ and his coming, where now everybody all over the world who come to Jesus Christ, they become God's chosen people. And if we are all God's chosen people, then none of us have a title on a certain piece of land. The Jews have no title on the land. The Palestinians have no title on the land. The people who live in the land, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, they have the title on the land because they live there. I was just so, just so you know, and so my audience knows, I 100% agree with everything you said on a, on a theological level. I mean, I, I was, I was, I used to believe in the kind of the you know uh, ethnic Jewish people have a theological right to the land, but I just, I don't. I, I think that's a misreading of Romans 11, partly. I think a lot of it comes from an American political climate, less so from the scripture. Or I think it comes from people, from my perspective, and it sounds like from your perspective as well, kind of misreading the, uh, what I would call, you know, discontinuities between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. You can't just read these promises in the Old Testament and think that they're going to be fulfilled in in the most literal sense that if we didn't have the New Testament, we might take them to be. Because, I mean, everything you're saying is not only clear, but I mean, Jesus, um, he came on the scene in a climate when people were expecting, the Jewish people were expecting the Messiah to be this militant revolutionary who would reclaim the land. So, and he clearly, he absolutely did not, he pushed back against that mindset. So when he says the kingdom of God is within you, and, you know, even the disciples are kind of like, when are we, okay, so, so are we going to reclaim the land now? You know, like, he, um, he, and he did not embrace that vision yeah. at all, you know, so. You know, I mean, the problem today is with um, uh, the teachings of what we call Christian Zionism. Christian Zionism is strong and is spreading very wide all over the United States. And uh, it, it is sad because the Christian Zionists, for, for them, the Israeli invasion of the Holy Land in 1948 is like a continuation of Joshua invasion, invading the Holy Land in the Old Testament. They take that as parallel. So the people like Ben-Gurion and other Israeli leaders, they are like Joshua and Moses and so on. Although these Israeli leaders, they are atheists. Huh. You know, Ben-Gurion was a professed atheist. And many of the Israeli prime ministers are professed atheists. But for Christian Zionists, they never acknowledge this. And they, they see in the current state of Israel as a continuation of biblical Israel. And when they do that, then they think of the Palestinians as the old Canaanites, Canaanites and the Philistines yeah. and the Amalekites that they deserve to be run out of the land so that God will give the kingdom to the Jewish people in preparation for the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a total theology that is out of harmony with the, the teachings of Jesus and out of harmony with the teachings of Paul and the apostles in the New Testament, where Paul says, you are all God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Whether you are Jews or Gentiles, Greeks or barbarians, and we are all have become the seed of Abraham 
through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul taught in the, his letter to the Galatians. And so I would invite my Christian Zionist brothers and sisters to reread the New Testament and, and put Jesus' glasses on their eyes so that they can see the truth about uh, Israel and Palestine. So it sounds so what you're saying is um when when Jewish when Israel kind of reclaimed the land they used kind of a theological rhetoric to achieve political ends even though they didn't really believe in the theological rhetoric they just kind of used that as kind of a, a... Yeah Ben Ben-Gurion was a Bible reader the first prime mm-hmm. minister of Israel Ben-Gurion was a Bible reader he had the Bible, and if you look at it, it's all marked with different colors and so on. So he was uh, an avid reader of the Bible. At the same time, he was a confessed atheist. But whenever convenient, he and the early Zionists, they said, this is our land. God gave it to us, if, although they did not believe in God. This is like a story that happened to my brother. One of my brothers, his name is Mubarak. He is a, a nonviolent peace activist. So he went to Palestine during the first uprising. He had a group of Palestinians, and they were planting trees on property that the Israelis were confiscating from Palestinians. He was planting olive trees. So he confronted Jewish settlers. And this settler came to him, and he said, why are you doing this? Why are you planting those olive trees on this land, he, my brother said, it's because this land is belong to us, Palestinians. We have the right to plant trees on our land. And the guy said, didn't you read the Bible? God gave the land to us, the Jewish people. And then my brother asked him, do you believe in God? And the Jewish settler said, no, I don't. <laughs> so you, you can see the hypocrisy in all of that, whenever it is convenient for them, they claim God gave them the land. I'm not saying that all the settlers don't believe in God. Many of them do. But some of them, they don't believe in God. But yet, whenever it's convenient, they use the name of God to steal Palestinian land. Can you give us a quick, just a brief history lesson for the last 150 years? I mean, because I... I, I... I lived in Israel. I don't know if you know that for like uh, four or five months. Um, and, and even now, I, my, my Israel history is just so cloudy. W- when did Jewish peoples begin to kind of reclaim the land? Like you, you mentioned the 48 war, which I, you know, the conflict, but it, it went back deeper than that. Like, like, can you take us back to the last 150 years and like what, sure. how did we get to where we are today? Well, well, bef- uh, uh, before 1948, we were um, occupied by the British. The British had Palestine, and they call it the British Mandate over Palestine. That lasted from about uh, 1917, 18 to 1948, the British Mandate over Palestine. Before that, before the British Mandate, we were under the Turkish, the Ottoman Turks Empire for 400 years. Palestine was like a province in the Turkish Empire. Syria was another province, Lebanon was another province. So we were a a province within the big empire called the Ottoman uh, Empire. And of course, the Ottomans, they lost the war to the British and the British took over Palestine uh, in around 19, 
1917 and established the British mandate. But part of the uh, reason why the British wanted Palestine was secret deals they made with a Christian Zionist and a secular a Jewish Zionist in order to take over Palestine because they had a, a, the British made a promise to the Jewish people. We call it the Belfort Declaration. Right. And the Belfort Declaration says that Jews have the right to go to the Holy Land and make it their homeland uh, with the condition that they should not infringe on the rights of the people who already live in the Holy Land, okay. which, of course, that part did not happen. But the uh, Jewish people took the Belfort Declaration as their Magna Carta to go to Palestine and create a Jewish state. Now, you have to understand this is happening, all of this is happening in the shadow of the Holocaust, where the Nazis have killed millions of Jews in concentration camps, and the whole Western countries were partly feeling guilty and partly feeling sympathetic to the Jewish people. And so they wanted to uh, compensate the Jews. None of the European countries were willing to compensate the Jewish people on their own turf. I mean, Germany did not want to give the Jewish people a piece of Germany. Neither did France want to give the Jewish people a piece of France, France. But they felt it convenient to say to the Jewish people, we support you, go to Palestine and create your own state in Palestine. And they did not care for our people, the Palestinian people, until today. They don't care whether it is the United States, Canada, Australia, France, England, uh, Germany. They don't care for the Palestinian people and what happened to them in the last say, 75 years. All they care, they wanted to support Israel. They felt guilty about the harm they did to the Jewish people. They did not want the Jewish people, but they they want them to dwell in Palestine and live there. So until today, you know, the Israelis are confiscating Palestinian land. They are demolishing Palestinian homes. They are incarcerated Palestinian youth in the thousands and none of these countries who always talk about human rights are willing to confront Israel with its human rights violations in the Holy Land. This is hypocrisy on big stage. I mean, it's great hypocrisy. When there is a war in Ukraine, for example, oh, they start you know, raising the flag. Russia is wrong. Russia is occupying another country. We should go and stand with Ukraine. We give Ukraine billions and billions of dollars worth of money and weapons to stand against Russian aggression. Well, Israel is doing the same thing, but they are totally blind and muted when it comes to Israel and its aggression against the Palestinian people. Uh, Why why are so many people being incarcerated and youth being, yeah, and and land being... Well, because it's natural for people under occupation to resist. It's natural. When a youth, 17, 18, 19 years old, he wakes up to life and he realizes um, the Israelis are beating his father, incarcerating his brother or sister, and taking his land or 
her land and his family's land that has been with them for many generations, they resist. I mean, their resistance is nothing like Israeli power. I mean, they may take a stone and throw it at an Israeli soldier, and then they get incarcerated for so many years, mm. you know, and abused and tortured in Israeli jails. But it's natural for people under occupation to, to resist their occupier. No, that, that makes sense. This episode is sponsored by One Million Home, an awesome organization dedicated to winning the battle to get orphan kids home. Did you know that there are 5.4 million kids in orphanages worldwide? Did you also know that the majority of those kids, given the right support, could actually return to their parents or other family members? In the face of family separation throughout the world, God is setting the lonely into their families. And One Million Home is doing an amazing job creating pathways to reunify kids with their families throughout the world. You might remember that I had uh, Brandon Stiver on the show from One Million Home a few podcasts ago. It was episode 989. And I was so blown away at the amazing work that he and One Million Home are doing. So we are inviting uh, Theologian Raw listeners, the Theologian Raw community, to join the movement of family reunification for Giving Tuesday this year. That's November 29th. It's coming up. It only costs $250 to reunite a kid with their family. So that's what your Giving Tuesday gift will be going to. So if you have a heart for orphans, and if you're a Christian, you kind of should, um, and you want to contribute to more effective and biblical ways of caring for orphans, then go to onemillionhome.com forward slash T-I-T-R. That's the number one, then millionhome, no spaces, dot com forward slash T-I-T-R. I love to, and if I, I hope if I ask a question, it doesn't sound offensive. These are genuine questions. No, but, no, no, absolutely um, not. You okay. Go ahead. So um, it seems like, and if this is totally wrong, then please correct me. I, I don't have a lot of knowledge under my feet with, with, you know, the, the conflict over there, but it seems like now, and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's um, kind, of, kind of terrorist groups that are instigating this, but it seems like on the Palestinian side, they typically initiate something and Israel now responds rather than vice versa. Um, like I remember, uh, you know, like when I, when I know, lived there, they had bomb shelters and there was, you know, frequently sirens would go off and we have to go to the bomb shelter because another rocket was launched over our heads, you know, and I don't think, and again, if I'm totally wrong, it doesn't seem like the Israeli military is kind of randomly, well, let's just throw a rocket into Palestine. Um, and, or, or maybe they do if they're trying to take out a leader or something and it kills a bunch of civilians or, um, yeah, I would love to your perspective. Am I getting like a warped perspective on, on things? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, uh, the, the word terrorist is loosely used in the media. Okay. And, and we, we pick and choose um, who to put the label terrorist on. You know, uh, Israeli fighter jets go over uh, Gaza and kill hundreds of people. They kill children playing on the sands of the Mediterranean Sea uh, uh, in Gaza. You know, uh, whole families wiped out, and the media never call them terrorists. They call it collateral damage. When Palestinians do anything, kill Israelis, then it is called terrorism. So the media poisons our mind in the West to put the label terrorism on one group, but close our eyes on what they do on, on the other side. Also, let's go to the West Bank. I'm living in my home. I have a garden, but the Israelis want my home and my garden. They give me a hard time. They force me out of my home. They force me out of my garden. So 
I'm upset. My children are upset. One of my young boys may go and do a terrorist act in Israel. Of course, the media would report the terrorist act and the Israeli retaliation to the terrorist act. My house, you know, gets demolished if it's still uh, my house, if it's not already with the Jewish, uh, a Jewish family in it. Uh, and so they are not willing to, to read the whole story. If they read the whole story, much of the West Bank, 60% of the West Bank have been confiscated by the Israelis. Palestinian lands, homes, trees, water resources. What should the Palestinians do? You know, uh, sit and be quiet while every, you know, all of their, you know, possession, property, land. Palestine is very, very small country. It's like the size of New Hampshire. It's not a big land. But yet the Israelis are coming and taking everything that the Palestinians have. Not only this, they are fighting the Palestinians economically, you know, and um, politically, and in every aspect uh, they could. So they are, in, in, the, in the mind of the West, they are the goody-goody people who are defending themselves, but the Palestinians are the uh, violent people who uh, are doing harm to Israelis. Yeah. That is because they, they are not willing to look at the whole story. If they look at the whole story, and usually people who come to Palestine and see it, uh, one example, uh, I used to work with the Methodist Church. I used to be a missionary with the Methodist Church in my country, in Palestine. And one United Methodist journalist decided to come and visit me, you know, and make a report. So her name is Cynthia. Cynthia called me from her hotel in Jerusalem. And she said, Alex, sorry, I cannot come to visit you in Bethlehem because my tour guide said Bethlehem is too dangerous to visit. It's safer for you to stay put in Jerusalem. I told her, Cynthia, don't listen to him. Just tell me which hotel. So she told me the name of the hotel. I drove my car to Jerusalem, picked Cynthia up, took her back to Bethlehem. We spent a day in Bethlehem. I showed her the holy places. I showed her the wall. I showed her the situation. And we had a wonderful visit. On the way back, as I was taking her back to her hotel, I noticed teardrops falling from her eyes. I was surprised. I said, Cynthia, did I say anything that offended you? Did I do anything that mm -hmm. offended you? Why are you crying? She said, no. She said, I am a journalist. I am supposed to know better. Hmm. I was so deceived by my tour guide and by the company that runs to tell me that Bethlehem was a violent place. We spent the whole day. It's a very peaceful place. The Palestinian people are very kind, very hospitable. And so I was so absolutely uh, you know, deceived. This is really what is going on. If, 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 that, if she was a journalist, and she was so much deceived. Can you imagine the rest of the population? You mentioned the media. Um, it does. Would you, from my perspective, it seems really divided ac across political lines. So like more right wing media like Fox News is going to be very pro Israeli and more left wing outlets, CNN or whatever, would be much more pro Palestinian. Would you agree with that? Or do you feel like it's, it's, it's no, more not yet? Not yet. I think I think Fox News is extremely pro-Israeli. 
CNN is pro-Israeli, but not extreme in that. You know, I have problem with Fox News because even if you watch Haaretz, that's an Israeli newspaper, if you watch Haaretz News compared to CNN, Haaretz is much more factual about the situation in Palestine than CNN. Okay. So CNN is is better than Fox News, but it's not out of the water as far as truth in reporting about the Palestine, uh, the situation in Palestine. There are new uh, reporter, new journalism in uh, on the left. Yes, that is that is coming. Also, the influence of Al Jazeera in the United States is positive because they have more balanced uh, reporting Al Jazeera than uh, the main media. And the reason for that, many of the media moguls, the, the big media companies, actually they are um, owned by pro-Israeli groups. Oh, okay. They are owned. They, they, they finance them. And so they, they have the money, and, and therefore they, they lean towards uh, news that are pro-Israel. I'm, I'm curious, as a Christian, when you were living in, in Israel, were there a lot of conversations with other Israeli Christians too? Like, did the Christianity create camaraderie, or were the ethnic tensions and political tensions a hindrance to unity? Uh, yeah, I would say both, because... You know, I was part of a group called Musalaha, which means reconciliation. Mm. And uh, this group, we reached out to our Messianic Jewish brothers and sisters, and they reached out mm -hmm. to us. And we would have wonderful fellowship. We eat meals together. We worship together. We went into trips together, say, to the Negev, to the desert, to, you know, to Jordan. And we had a wonderful time together. But, you know... Uh, many of the Messianic Jewish brothers and sisters, they have some kind of a Messianic perspective about Israel and that Israel is God's chosen people and God gave them the land. But we discovered that the secret for fellowship is to focus on Jesus as our main common denominator. Because if we focus on Jesus, we can continue to have fellowship. If we focus on theology and politics, <laughs> then it is very hard for us to, to keep um, a harmony in the body of Christ. However, uh, by saying this, I'm not um, recommending that we um, uh, compromise what we believe or they compromise what they believe. However, we look at each other face to face and say, I don't agree with you, but I still love you. Mm -hmm. In the love of Christ, I still love you, even though I don't agree with you. You believe that 1947, 1946, and also you believe that uh, 1948 is, uh, are all, and uh, 67 are all miracles of God fighting on this on behalf of Israel, well, you believe that God is engineering all of that on behalf of Israel? Well, we don't believe that. We believe these are genocides where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were killed and became refugees. So we, we don't look at this as you look at them. However, we can disagree and continue to have fellowship um, and don't, don't demand from us to take your perspective 
and we don't demand from you to take our perspective. I should have asked this earlier because I, I want to go back to the kind of 1948 situation or the kind of post-World War II occupation. From how you describe it, that 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 should be, I think, pretty easy for a lot of people to say, yeah, that, that, that probably wasn't good, you know, the way it went down, um, especially for the Palestinian people. Um, would you say that that still lives in the in in the in the lives and memory of the conflict so like you said e- even if you know you drive through a city and some kid throws a rock at your bus or whatever like you know and then when i was there you know that happened it wasn't you know there were areas when i feel like if i got out of the bus i had to kind of duck because kids were throwing rocks at me um but i i don't know i always kids don't just wake up and like want to throw rocks at people like th- there's there's a history here there's a there's a situation would you say that that occupation in the post world war 2 era just is still almost fresh in the minds of of Palestinians. Yes, um, yes, we we always commemorate, remember what we call al Nakba. Al Nakba is a word means catastrophe or a disaster, and that's what happened to Palestinians in 1948 when uh, we lost about two thirds of our country to Israel. You know, in the first Arab-Israeli war and nearly 800,000 Palestinians became refugees. So so that is is the Nakba. And every Palestinian, uh, whether an old man like me or whether a child, they are taught and they learn uh, about the Nakba. Of course, the Israelis, for them, it is their Independence Day. The Nakba Day for us is their Independence Day. But you see the the difference, you know. Huh. Uh, but this is what we need to think for the future. What is the future holding for Israelis and Palestinians? We Palestinians are becoming more than half of the population from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. What are the Israelis are going to do with us? Are they going to uh, continue to deny us rights, confiscate our land? and humiliate us? Or are they going to wake up one day and they say, these are our neighbors. We have to live with them and they have to live with us. And there is no choice. There's no choice for us as Israelis, but to have a one state with equal rights of citizenship for everyone, whether regardless of their religion, uh, ethnicity, or uh, cultural background. We are all one people. We need to live in this land as uh, uh, one people. And we can rebuild it on the basis of peace and justice and equality. Yeah. Until the Israelis are willing to, to steer away from their um, mentality of occupation and oppression into a mentality of coexistence, we will continue to have problem in the country. When did you, when did you move to, because you, you're in, Eugene, Oregon. Now, when did you move to the states? In uh, 2015, I, uh, my wife and I, resigned, re- resigned, or retired, really, from missionary work with the United Methodist Church, and we re- moved to Eugene because we have a daughter living in Eugene. Uh, so now we live in Eugene, but we continue to be very active on Palestinian issues, trying to help 
uh, my our fellow American citizens understand what's going on in Palestine. Um, in the Bible College, is it still go- going? And how's it? How's it? Doing yes, there? yes, the Bible College is still going, and they have students, and uh, they are progressing. They have also a peace uh, program where they give a master's in education peace studies oh, wow. uh, for local people and also for uh, via Zoom for international people around the world. So the Bible College is doing very well. And we are thankful. We are really thankful that something that started from zero, from nothing. I mean, when my brother started the Bible College, he had $20 in his pocket. Wow. And now it's a multi-million uh, property, you know, the... And it's really a, a great Bible college, you know. Uh, of course, he uh, he now is president emeritus because we have a young man, uh, Jack Sarah, who is um, running the Bible college, and he's doing a great job. Are, are all the students Palestinian, or most of them, or is it more diverse? Or uh, generally, all the students in the college are Palestinians because our borders are limited. Uh, Israel will not allow. Christians from Lebanon or from Syria or from Iraq to come to our Bible college. However, via the internet, we attract people who are not Palestinians, people from all over the world and all over the Arab world and the Middle East can uh, study at Bethlehem Bible College, even though they never set a foot in Bethlehem. Is there a lot of tension between the Christian Palestinians and Muslim Palestinians or like the, the you know, I, I, is the Bible college kind of seen as like in bed with the West, if you will, or, or like because it's Christian and people think that if you're Christian, oh, so you're just pro-America or whatever, or like is, is there other tensions along those lines? Or No, within, within uh, the, in the Bethlehem community, the Bible college is quite respected by both Christians and Muslims. Um, because for the last 45 years, Bethlehem Bible College have been ministering not only the gospel and the teaching theology to our students, but we have been involved in serving the community in many, many ways. We have an organization called the Shepherd Society, which is the humanitarian hand of the Bible College. And through the Shepherd Society, we give food, medicine to people who are in need, regardless of their faith, regardless whether they are Muslims or mm. Christians. So uh, all of the people in Bethlehem, they are aware of uh, the Shepherd Society and the ministries of Bethlehem Bible College. And therefore, um, whether it is the average man on woman or the, on the street, or the mayor or the governor of Bethlehem, they all have high respect to Bethlehem Bible College. Mm. That's great. Wow. I think I remember seeing when I was, I mean, this, I was in Israel fall of 1999. It's, it's been a, a few years. Um, and we visited Bethlehem, did the, you know, t- tourist stuff. And I, th- I think I remember seeing the sign is, is the Bible college That's right there in the city? Right, right yeah. there. You can see the sign yeah. on a main street. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being shocked. I'm like, well, Bethlehem Bible college. I didn't know there was a Bible college. You should, you should yeah. have stopped the car and went down and I know, yeah. <laughs> but it's not too late. Let's go. Ah, well, hey, I'll take you up on that. I, I, um, <laughs> to say I loved living in Israel is a, is a, is an understatement. 
Um, obviously, there's you know the 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 sites, how the Bible comes alive. But I fell in love with the culture, but but both I mean the Jewish culture and just and Palestinian culture, and I loved it so much. In fact, I I actually <laughs> and, and I don't know if this is good. I'm not saying I encourage this, but I even I I actually loved waking up to the the Muslim prayers through the loudspeaker just because Allah it was just so like just the religious tensions and, and just, it was just in the air and it was just so fascinating to me. I just really fell in love with it. Um, yeah. yeah so I'll go an back. Ama- it's an amazing place. I, oh, the food. Oh, quite often the, oh, the hummus. Oh, shawarmas and falafels. And I could eat well, that every, you, every you, you sponsor a trip and I'll be one of your teachers. <laughs> And I, I love like just wandering down the, the streets of old, you know, the old city and like, you know, the, the shopkeepers and they're playing backgammon, drinking tea. And it's so easy to get into conversation. It was, I found the people, they're so incredibly uh, friendly. And, and so I, I, I very much the perspective of your journalist friend, like I, I experienced that too. Not, not that there's not danger and tension or whatever, but like, I just found in the individual people so friendly. In fact, um, there's a shopkeeper there who a devout Muslim, but he, he would always do like the money. He would exchange money for us, you know, and we would go sit in a shop for hours, drink tea mm-hmm. and talk. And he was so just kind. And like, I don't know. And I, I don't, maybe he's shady. I don't, I don't know. I don't know his personal life, but I just found it's so fun to just walk around talking to people, you know, the same if you walk in Bethlehem, I'm people, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't talk with them, they'll talk with you. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't invite them, they'll invite you. <laughs> uh, and and they are genuine in their hospitality. Are they suspicious of like Americans coming in? I mean, thinking because they probably, they know, I mean, American and Israel are so close. So do they, are they kind of suspicious at first or? I think some, some would be, some would be, you know, uh, but so, uh, the majority will be more friendly, even friendly, would, you wouldn't believe it, to Israelis. Really? Okay. Yeah, even friendly to Jews and Israelis, because for most Palestinians, this is not a religious conflict. Mm. We are not against Judaism. We are not against a a religious set of beliefs. It's basically people who are taking our land, whether it's in the name of politics or whether it is in the name of God, they are taking our lands and making it their land by force. And... Um, accusing us of being what you call it terrorists, you take our land and we are the terrorists. Yeah, you know that that is what aggravates some people. But on personal level, we love people, whether they are Muslims, Christians, or Jews, and uh, and Palestinians are hospitable. You know, of course, there are times when the political tensions are high then that hospitality drops. But, <laughs> you know, by nature, you know, because... It's understandable. Also, the other Palestinian would think that you are collaborator if somebody, some of your friends are being killed and you here you are offering uh, coffee and pita to, a, <laughs> to an enemy, you know. <laughs> so that that is difficult. But... Uh, but most of the time, you know, uh, in peaceful time, most of the time, Palestinians are very hospitable. How did how did the Palestinian people view the terrorists that are, you know, in Gaza or the West Bank? I mean, um... well, you know, uh, our position, the p- position of the Palestinian government is uh, 
you know, terrorists are terrorists. And what Mahmoud Abbas, uh, the Palestinian president, does, he incarcerates those people. And even the Palestinian Authority are putting them in jail. That makes the Palestinian Authority very unpopular in some Palestinian circles because they think of them as freedom fighters, not as terrorists. And here you are, Mahmoud Abbas, putting them in jails. But most of the Palestinians don't want to see terrorism. They don't want to see innocent Jews killed and their blood is spilled Mm. on the streets of Jerusalem. But at the same time, you know, uh, sometimes when when Israelis are killing dozens of Palestinians, their their mind changes. And then, you know, that feeling of revenge comes and then they want to do to Israelis what's being done to them. So the, the, you would say the majority of Palestinians do not view terrorists as freedom fighters, but when there's injustice done towards Palestinians, there might be a little bit of like, well, you know, <laughs> a little more sympathy with the freedom fighter kind of motivation. Yeah, exactly. But And also, really, our definition of terrorist and terrorism completely is different than the West. Because, like I said earlier in the on the program, Western media and Western governments, um, they put the label terrorist on the people they want to put the label on them. And even though, even though Israelis do much more killing and really terrorism than Palestinians, that word terrorism never is labeled on the Israelis. And that is not fair. Well, Alex, you've given us a lot to think about, and I know my audience is probably a, a mix of like, <laughs> like agreement, disagreement, or people just having their minds spinning around thinking like, uh, I haven't thought about it from this angle before. So thank you so well, much for, uh, I just love I'd your be emphasis. Glad to, share, to share my book with them. Oh, yes, yes, please or, do. Yes. Or, you know, I mean, the book that I wrote is called Palestinian Memories the story of a Palestinian mother and her people. You can find it uh, on Amazon, and you can find a used copy. Also, you can find it on the digital the digital copy of the book. Okay, yeah. And, and, and your other book, uh, Through the Eyes of Victims, in 2001. Through the Eyes of the Victim is a simple book I wrote about 20, 25 years ago, but it's like the ABC of the Arab-Israeli conflict for dummies. Okay. It's very simple book. Yeah. And this book here yeah. is really the newest book. This is written by my brother and and um, his ghostwriter. Her name is Mercy uh, Aiken in the Dark Streets Shining. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it talks, this is the uh, autobiography of my brother Bishara, who started Bethlehem Bible College. It's an amazing book. If people send me their address, I am willing to send them the book for a small contribution. Okay. Yeah. For a what, small uh, contribution because it it uh, you know it takes money to print the book sure. and to ship it. But if somebody would would say here, here Alex, this is my snail mail address. Send me the book and I'll send the contribution. This contribution will not go to me but it will go to uh, an organization that does peace and justice in the Holy Land. That's fantastic. What's yeah. your email address? How can they uh, okay. get you? Yeah. They, they can go to Alex E, like uh, elephant, award, A-W-A-D, at yahoo, 
www.ghostbusters.com. I will put that in the show notes so people can just easily. Yeah, uh, if if yeah. they if they uh, do contact me, I'll uh, send them uh, the book, and they can make a symbolic contribution. Okay, sounds good, Alex. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, love your heart towards Jesus. Most of all, that's uh, just you're giving us Amen. a lot to think about. <laughs> sure. Okay. Sure. God bless you. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.